it's important to remember and review the maternal and fetal physiology that make this very unique, co-adaptive, quasi-symbiotic relationship called pregnancy work. And we're going to review at the end of the podcast the fetal circulatory system because we tend to forget that. And we're also going to review the three components that go into fetal hypoxia. Here's why we're doing this. Both the Residency Review Commission for OBGYN and APCO, which is the Association of Professors in Obstetrics and Gynecology for Medical Students, agree that understanding maternal fetal physiology is part of the residency curriculum and medical student OBGYN clerkship. And the reason that's important is because if we forget basic changes or normal adaptive responses in the maternal compartment in pregnancy, then we can take what's a normal result in pregnancy and interpret that as path when we look at a lab value or a physical finding. So that's why we're doing this podcast as a quick review of what is normal in pregnancy and not pathological. So let's start with the endocrine system focusing on the thyroid. Physically, the thyroid can increase in size slightly during pregnancy, but not enough to be considered grossly pathological or grossly enlarged. More importantly is that beta-8CG peaks at around 10 to 12 weeks, and while we used to say the range was anywhere from 10,000 to 100,000 during this time, we know that the range of beta-8CG is really quite variable. Importantly, HCG has a thyrotropin-like effect. This causes a slight reduction in TSH and a slight increase in free T4 in the first trimester. But by the end of the first trimester, in the beginning of the second trimester, when estrogen levels tend to rise, there is an increase in thyroxin-binding globulin. So this leads to a total increase in T3 and a total increase of T4, but the free levels of both both T4 and free T3 remain in the normal range by the second trimester. Also remember that this rise in estrogen is specifically estriol, which is a type of estrogen which is in highest concentration in pregnancy. Next, as we move on to the GI system, remember that progesterone is the hormone that most affects the GI tract. Progesterone is first made by the corpus luteum and then is taken over in its production by the placenta. Remember that progesterone is a potent smooth muscle relaxer. This leads to an overall decrease in GI motility time, which leads to the, of course, all too common constipation of pregnancy. But there's also a decrease in certain sphincter tones. For example, there's a decrease in lower esophageal sphincter tone, which leads to an increase in gastroesophageal reflux symptoms. There's also a decrease in the efficiency of gallbladder emptying, which can lead to gallbladder stasis and the formation of gallstones. Of course, we can't address GI changes without talking about nausea vomiting of pregnancy. The truth is, is that 50 to 90% of women experience some component of nausea or vomiting in the first trimester, but it usually resolves by 14 to 16 weeks. Hyperemesis gravidarium is a unique condition where persistent nausea and vomiting is associated with weight loss and ketonuria. While the certain percentage of pre-pregnancy weight that has to be lost has been argued for a formal definition, most use about a 5% loss in pre-pregnancy weight accompanied by ketonuria and in absence of some other organic factor. But once again, most of these symptoms resolve by 14 to 16 weeks. 
And of course, because nothing in life is ever fair, once the nausea finally goes away and the patient starts to feel better, then comes the ever-expanding growth of the gravid uterus so that by the end of the second trimester and into the third trimester, there's a natural upward push of the stomach up into the diaphragm area. This causes further increase in GERD symptoms. Next, let's cover the cardiovascular system. The ever-increasing fetal placental unit and the gravid uterus requires an increase in blood volume. So, very early on in pregnancy, there's an increase in blood volume by 6 to 8 weeks and it reaches a peak by 45% at 32 weeks. Now, remember the definition of cardiac output. It's heart rate times stroke volume. So in the first half of pregnancy, this increase in cardiac output, which increases by 30 to 50% overall in pregnancy, in the first half of pregnancy, it's caused by stroke volume. Heart rate is responsible for the increase in cardiac output in the second half of pregnancy. So let's say that again. There's an increase in blood volume very early on in the first trimester at around six to eight weeks. This, in addition to this increase in stroke volume, increases cardiac output in the first half of pregnancy and is further augmented by the increase in heart rate called the natural tachycardia of pregnancy in the second half of pregnancy. And we're back to progesterone. Just as progesterone affected the GI tract, progesterone has effects on the cardiovascular system. The placenta, which makes progesterone, also makes other vasodilatory substances. This leads to a nadir or a drop in peripheral systemic resistance and a drop in blood pressure with a nadir around 20 to 26 weeks. This is why postural hypotension is a real issue, so that women that are lying down and get up quickly can have a vasovagal episode. It's also the reason why pregnant women, especially after the first trimester and definitely into the second and beyond, should not lie flat on their back because of the venocaval compression syndrome. So women who are lying on their back in pregnancy should have a left tilt or lie completely on their side. Okay, now here's a clinical pearl. By the end of pregnancy, the gravid uterus and the fetal placental unit gets 20% of the cardiac output compared to just 2% in the first trimester. So again, that's a huge change. That's a tenfold increase from 2% cardiac output in the first trimester to 20% by the end of pregnancy. All right, don't go anywhere because the respiratory system is next. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Oxygen consumption increases by 40 to 60% in pregnancy. There's an increase in minute ventilation by 30 to 40%. This causes an increased production of CO2, which leads to a decrease in the arteriopartial pressure of CO2, causing a respiratory alkalosis. 
Also, for the respiratory system, remember that there's a decrease in the functional residual capacity, and there's also a physiological anatomical increase in mucosal edema that can make intubation and bag mask ventilation difficult in the pregnant patient. This increase in systemic respiratory alkalosis is balanced by an increase in bicarb excretion, which leads to decreased serum bicarb. So the result on an ABG is a compensatory respiratory alkalosis with a near normal pH, although it tends to be a little bit more on the basic side of normal. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Before we leave the respiratory system, we have to review what the minute ventilation actually is. We said that there's an increase in minute ventilation by up to 40%, but what is it? Well, remember that the minute ventilation is a total volume of gas that's entering or leaving the lungs per minute. It's equal to the tidal volume times the respiratory rate. And in pregnancy, most of this increase in minute ventilation is because of an increase in tidal volume with very small increases in respiratory rate. As we wrap this up, remember that there's also physical or anatomical changes to the maternal thorax. The diaphragm moves up an impressive about 4 centimeters in late pregnancy due to the gravid uterus. There's also an overall increase in the chest diameter and there's an increase in chest circumference. Now, on to the hematological system. Plasma volume increases by about 45 to 50%, but red blood cell volume only increases by 35%. This leads to the well-known physiological anemia of pregnancy. While traditionally, patients were instructed to take iron supplementation daily or sometimes multiple times a day, we now know that that actually decreases iron absorption. So the best way to take supplemental iron in pregnancy is every other day, and ideally, with a vitamin C analog. In line with these hematological changes are changes in clotting factors. Fibrinogen increases by 50%, but protein C and protein S decrease in pregnancy. This leads to an increase in thrombophilic propensity. Thromboembolism risk is two times in pregnancy what it is in the non-pregnant individual, but it's actually five-fold higher in the immediate postpartum period. All right, before we get into the fetal physiology, let's remember some important physical findings in pregnancy. Remember that in the patient who is gravid, finding distended neck veins is not uncommon and is not pathological. Also, the presence of a systolic ejection murmur is quite normal in pregnancy due to the increased flow across the pulmonary and aortic valves. But remember, as a clinical pearl, that a diastolic murmur is never normal. And lastly, remember that almost all pregnant women have some component of mild non-pitting dependent edema in pregnancy, but what's considered pathological edema is when it's significantly pitting or the hands are involved or facial features also involved the indemnous process. That's where abnormal third spacing of fluid, like with preeclampsia, comes into play. 
Now, as we wrap this up, let's focus on the fetal circulatory and physiological changes. Remember that the umbilical cord has two umbilical arteries and one umbilical vein. It's the vein that takes the oxygenated blood from the placenta to the fetus. The umbilical vein takes that oxygenated blood and it enters the fetal portal system. 50% goes into the liver and the other 50% enters the ductus venosus to lead into the inferior vena cava. This is the first fetal shunt. Blood in the inferior venal cava enters the right atrium, and this is where the second fetal shunt through the foraminal valley comes into play. Remember that blood that enters the right atrium is still oxygenated, but then because the pressures on the right side of the heart are greater than the left, blood is forced through this foraminal valley, again the second fetal shunt, into the left atrium. Blood in the left atrium enters the left ventricle and then out into the aorta. It is here in the aorta where we get mixing by the third fetal shunt, which is the ductus arteriosus. The ductus arteriosus is the connection between the aorta and the pulmonary artery. The function of the foramen ovale and the ductus arteriosus are to draw blood away from the non-aerated, the non-oxygenated fetal lungs to the remainder of the body. So once blood enters that left atrium, it is now mixed deoxygenated blood. This blood then travels down the aorta into the common iliacs and into the internal iliac arteries where they branch into the umbilical arteries and return back into the placenta. Remember, to determine the fetal acid-base status of the child at delivery, we look for the umbilical arterial gas because that is the blood that is coming out from the child. This is important, of course, as we try to determine the presence of fetal metabolic acidosis. Fetal hypoxia, which can lead to metabolic acidosis, can occur by three mechanisms. The first is maternal oxygenation being compromised. For example, if she's uptunded or has severe asthma or has pulmonary edema, then maternal oxygenation is affected. The second way in which fetal hypoxia can occur is if maternal perfusion of the placenta is decreased, for example, with severe hypotension due to an epidural or severe blood loss. The third way is when delivery of oxygenated blood from the placenta to the fetus is interrupted. These are, of course, the typical umbilical cord accidents or true tight knots. When fetal oxygenation is affected for a variable amount of time, then metabolism in the fetus proceeds to anaerobic pathways and the production of organic acids like lactic acid. These are not readily excreted by the fetus or metabolized. So these acids then build up and deplete the natural buffer system and can result in fetal metabolic acidosis. Remember, pathological fetal acidosis is defined as a fetal umbilical arterial pH less than 7.00 and a base deficit of greater than 12. Now, I know I've said this before, and it's been a topic of various podcasts of mine in the past about this whole issue of maternal oxygenation in labor as a way to try to resuscitate the child. Remember that maternal administration of oxygen is only valid if the mother is acutely hypoxic. And the reason is, is that fetal hemoglobin is to the left of adult hemoglobin dissociation curve. In other words, fetal hemoglobin is an avid scavenger of even low levels of oxygen. It's the 20, 30, 40, 50 rule, and I'll post that picture on our website on Facebook. But just remember that the PO2 for the umbilical vein oxygen is only 30. 
the 20-30-40-50 rule has to do with the millimeters of mercury, the values of the umbilical cord gases, and you'll never forget it, the 20-30-40-50 rule. The umbilical artery PO2 is 20. Remember, that's low because it's coming already from the child that's utilized some of the oxygen. The umbilical vein PO2 is 30. The umbilical vein PCO2 is 40. And the umbilical artery PCO2 is 50. The 20, 30, 40, 50 rule. And remember, I'll post that image on our Facebook website. And the placenta. Remember that anatomically or structurally, there's two different compartments. The fetal compartment or the fetal surface and the maternal compartment, which is the cotyledons. So here's the easiest way to talk about the placental physiology. The maternal compartment of the placenta is where there's pools of maternal blood. The fetus, through its fetal compartment, then inserts its capillaries via trophoblastic cells into these pools of blood. There's active transport of glucose and amino acids and other nutrients across this trophoblastic barrier. But oxygen and CO2 are passively diffused. Alright, that wraps up our quick review of maternal, fetal, and placental physiology for a quick review of basic anatomical and physiological changes of pregnancy. Thanks for being part of our podcast family, and we'll see you next time on Clinical Pearls. Thank you.